Hey, 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 happy Sunday to everybody. Thank you once again for joining Insights with Latrice. I'm always so excited and humbled that you would be a part of my time, my space here on Facebook Live, as well as the podcast. I appreciate you guys. I'm so thankful for you guys. We got another great topic, as you can see. We have, um, we're still dealing with race, right? And that's going to always be. But I just thought, you know what? Let's do something where, okay, I've been bringing this information, right? But we haven't really talked about the healing aspect of it. And so I had to make sure that I got the right person for the job. And I promise you, I have the right person. Um, I have Michael McGill Jr. Let me just tell you about this young man and I'll really let him introduce himself properly. But um, I've known him probably, oh, what, five years maybe. Um, and we we used to actually do radio together. We had a segment and um, he's hilarious. He's funny, but he's so many different things he's an author he's a speaker a lecturer tv personality a commentator an educator did i say that he's an advocate for the youth he's a counselor he's single hey <laughs> listen um he's handsome for those of you that are listening by podcast um he's smart Sometimes I say, Michael, I'm going to need you to spell that and then give me a definition, please. And thank you. But what I love about him, he's so in tune and engaged with what's going on on so many levels, not just the race um, level, you know, not just um, the racism, the the different topics of racism, but even from a from a standpoint of the psychology sociology i mean you really can just talk to him about any and everything and he's really a master at it and he's young like he's young enough to be my son and i love it but um i respect him i respect his gift i respect everything he brings to our community especially our black community um what we're very thankful I'm very grateful and thankful to have him here on my show, Insights with Latrice. And without further ado, Michael McGill. Woo! I need some mute some. What's that noise? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was in the background cracking up at this introduction. Oh, Latrice, what a way to introduce me. Thank you so much. I'm very grateful. I'm very, very grateful. <laughs> and it's good to see you and your element in this platform, teaching and reaching and enriching people's lives. That's such a blessed and sacred space to be in. Thank you. Well, you know what? I'm just so thankful that you would even say yes. I know how busy you are and how you're wanted on everybody's show and the fact that you <laughs> allowed, you said yes, you know, um, I'm, we're very grateful. Thank you yeah, so much. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. grateful for whenever I get opportunities. And although I don't get to do some of the ones that I would like to, whether it's scheduling conflict or just life yeah. in general, and I'm learning how to balance and prioritize sleep and rest and wellness. <laughs> yes. The other day, I didn't realize I, I do therapy work and I didn't realize how exhausted I was until I okay. literally stayed in the bed almost all day wow because <laughs> like, your body was telling you hey yeah we're tired. 
And yeah. that's the, the juxtap it's, it's juxtaposed for me because I love the work of teaching and enriching yeah. and working with, with patients in a therapy setting as well as in platforms like this. Yeah. And so because I, I love it so much, it gives me this natural high and the endorphins and the, yes. all the, the serotonin and all these other these yes. things in our bodies that, that make us awake and alert, right? Right, uh, right. It just had me going. And then all of a sudden, when it's over, it goes, pew, and then you can have a plateau. And yes. don't even realize you're in a plateau. I'm like, yes. is something wrong? Am I sick? Is it COVID? <laughs> no, you're just tired. <laughs> you're just tired. And you do. You have so much on your plate. I know that we talked last week. And I think we end up talking for, what, almost an hour and a half or something? Yes, like yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't even realize the time, yeah. right? we just got into so much right yeah, yeah. Um, and so it's always a pleasure to talk to you so i did introduce you but is there anything i i missed as far as the hats that you wear because you wear so many and you wear them well my thing i know um we got that saying um b what is it jack of wait a minute uh jack of all trade a master it? of none <laughs> but that's not your case <laughs> because Anything you put your hands to, a lot like my husband, you master. Mm, that's so, so enriching. I, Thank you. I, yeah, I got it. I think we can't say that for everybody. I mean, yeah, some people yeah. need to follow that, you know, yeah. <laughs> one thing, be good at it and stay there, stay yeah. in that lane. But for someone like you, especially, I, I see you in so many different hats and platforms mm -hmm. and I'm like, wow, okay. Yeah. Awesome. Once again, okay, you're in this platform. Okay, how you'll probably be good, but not that good. Mm, no, you exceeded my expectation. Okay, let's you are too beloved. Well, the so, thing about it is that they all tend to coincide, so it's really okay. under the auspices of people development. And so okay. through people development, I, I my background is in sociology and psychology. So it's what we call, call social psychology, where the sociology aspect is studying systems and institutions and yeah. social systems that this world we live in, that it yeah. encompasses. And then the psychology is how these social systems in the world impact people. How do the yeah. ways we grow up impact our development, our, our what we call a biopsychosocial model, our biology, our psychology, and our social aspect of life. And so it's it's really through the mediums of speaking, writing, television that I do the work that I do. And so honestly, I mean, I, I see it all as, as one big pie. I just kind of okay. separate the pie, but it's still the same ingredients. It's still the same whatever kind of pie you like or cake or whatever you want to call yes. it. It's not like I'm teaching. I'm also a plumber on the side. Uh, okay. So um, it's really yeah. in the under the auspices of people development and enriching through psychological awareness, sociological awareness, interpersonal yeah. awareness, all that stuff. And sometimes I don't even know what I do for a living. My grandmother asked me, well, what is it that you do again? So I can tell so-and-so. What is it that you do again? That's the entrepreneur in me. What do you say? I just, it depends on the day. I'll give her a title. I'll say, Granny, just say this. Just say that. Just say this. Just just say therapist. Say, say educate. I, I don't know. Say writer. Say what you want. I to say. love it. I love it. <laughs> but they're all under that vision because that is one thing that I will say that yeah. keeps me enriched is because everything that I do follows the same vision. The mediums yeah. just are a little bit different. But the vision is very clear. And so when I'm getting professional development, when I'm reading, when I'm learning, yeah. it's all meeting the same vision. It's not like I'm trying to read about psychology and being a plumber and being a mechanic, you know, yeah. so that that would yeah. have me everywhere. But if the, the vision is still under that people development. Everything that I read, everything that I do yeah. really follows that that modality of how do I support people 
and thinking higher and shifting their consciousness about the way that they see themselves and the way that they see others. And so racial relations happens to be a conduit of that. Relationships happen to be a conduit of that. And a lot of it even comes from my own personal dysfunction, helping me see the world through my wisdom and not through the wounds, healing through wisdom versus through wounds, you know, stuff like that. So, you know. I love it. And and you're very honest. And that's also a beautiful thing. And so those that are listening and watching, please, if you have any questions, hey, Daphne, Remy, Christine, Dexter, or hey, cousin Dexter, Teresa, Janice, all of you, um, Dr. Marge, um, Amira, Zaini. Hey, guys. Hey, look who I have, Michael McGill. <laughs> okay, let's get into it. So yeah. we are talking about race in America. It's time to heal. Mm-hmm. And we're going to get to that, Michael. But first, in my humble opinion, mm-hmm. and correct me if I'm wrong, before we can heal, we kind of have to go through an acknowledgement of what has caused these wounds or challenges or trauma to get to that place called healing. Right, so, right. And that... Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. Excuse me. Well, that's the epitome of healing. Oftentimes people say things like, well, let's heal, let's heal, let's heal. But if you don't actually do the surgical work, think about it. Let's put this in an analogy for a moment. When you go to the doctor and you go to the surgeon, they have to actually first cut you open. They first make an incision. They, they, well, let me, let me back up some. Before they even do the surgical work, they first do an assessment. They do an analysis. They see your symptomology is what they call it. They evaluate the symptoms. They evaluate your chief concerns. They look at you. They do testing to see your blood work, your elevations, all those things like that. Then when you're finally good to go for to make, they they then make sure you can withstand surgery. After you then are finally cleared to go to surgery, that's when they then make an incision. And then if it's a cancer issue, they cut you open. They search for the cancer they yeah. get the scalpel, they get the tool, they get whatever they're going to use, and then they find a way to remove the cancer. So that yeah. is this, the same is true about relationships, about racial reconciliation, about communal, familial dysfunction, anything like that. You cannot actually do the healing until you first do the dealing. But the yeah. reason why so many of us don't just want to rush to the healing is because the dealing, which is a, a which is a, a heavy ingredient to the healing, it is discomfort. It, it's not comfortable, right? Yeah. It's messy. Yeah. It's chaotic, and it's also it can be very painful. It's painful, but it's powerful. Yeah. And often we don't take the time to do the necessary work of dealing. So that is why you have the same people in the same relationships 10, 20, 30 years later, having the same conversations, doing the same fixing in the same therapy office or whatever it may be, because they haven't actually done the surgical work to remove the cancer. They've just they've rushed and they put a Band-Aid on a gunshot wound, and then they wonder why it's infected, Latrice. How do we do that? I put a Band-Aid on a gunshot wound that needs surgery because I don't want to go through the surgical process. I don't want to go through the recovery process. I don't want to go through the healing process, the pain of trying to have to learn how to walk again, talk again, whatever. So what do I do? I then put a Band-Aid on a gunshot wound, right? Yeah. And I wonder why I later on have to realize my leg has to be amputated. And that's a reality what so many of us do in these wow. what we call loops and cycles. Isn't that interesting? Wow. 
So that interesting. Is, uh, it is very interesting. You said put a Band-Aid on a, a, a gunshot wound. A gunshot wound. Now, how you going to put Band-Aid? A little bitty. Stick. Oh, you, you, but we you, do. But Our we relationships, do. And this is marriages. what's happening. This is what's happening right now in America. Absolutely. We've Absolutely. done it so long. Right. Yes. yes. And so there's topics, there's issues within America that we put a bandaid on so long and we right. need to deal with it. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'm just going to throw some things out. Okay. Let's see and if I can I catch. Speak on it. Yeah. I want, I want you to catch. Let's first talk about black on black crime. Okay. Catch. Catch. Well, let me throw it back at you and okay. say, I don't know any other racial group of people that are blamed because oftentimes, more often than not, black on black crime is often used as a deflection when you talk about police violence or any other type of violence. But yeah. when I begin to do the unpacking, I don't know any other population of people that are blamed for their deaths when they die at the hands of law enforcement. That is often the main wow. retort. And my response is, why is there no other population of people who are blamed for their deaths when they have been unarmed? If the first thing you say when someone says Black Lives Matter or if someone says I'm protesting police violence, if the first thing you claim is, well, what about black on black crime? You are deflecting and you ain't ready to do the healing. Wow. If that is the first thing you say, because here's what many of us have been conditioned to believe, that we can, that things are mutually exclusive. That means it can only be one way, one right. conversation at one time. Last time I checked, I can be for the healing of black communities and yeah. against police violence on black bodies. I can be for quality law enforcement and for police accountability at the same time. I can be for quality therapists in this world and yes. for therapist accountability, psychologist accountability. Why, yes. why is it that people believe that you can't have two, three things going on in the same kitchen? Do you make your meals one at a time or do you cook with multiple pots? Right, right. Multiple pots. Yeah. And so we don't say, <laughs> and like I said on the, the Fox show that I was on, we don't say often as a retort Latino on Latino crime. We don't often say white on white crime, but the reality, yeah. when you look at the statistics and say, I'm a numbers person, I love looking at what the data says and evaluating the data for what it is. When you look at the numbers, black folks commit crimes at the same proportion, very similar proportions as white people. However, white folks, and I'll say this gracefully when I use the term white folks, but they tend to, more often than not, get lesser sentences, for the same crimes, yes, they're sir. often seen as less suspicious, as yes, less criminalistic, when in retrospect, both communities commit crimes at very proportionate rates. But what we, what we also have to unpack is why black folks in predominantly black communities that also happen to be poor, why those individuals are committing crimes at the numbers that they commit? Why is it that we often only see quote unquote black on black crime? And it's because research has shown that news medias over-report, quote-unquote, if we're going to believe it to be a thing, black crime, and they under-report white crime. Have you noticed that? Yeah. They happen at the same levels. Yeah. Home invasions, criminals, white-collar crime, all those things, all that stuff. If it, and, and let me also say this. Last time I looked at the numbers, the 1%, the wealthy 1%, they are actually, they, they, they actually account for about 70% of, of, of issues when it comes to tax evasion. Things like that that we don't often see when it comes to, to television news. They'll report, you know, a story like the mother 
who I forget what state she was in, but she actually was arrested for sending her child to the wrong school. And they sued her. Yeah, sued her for the tuition. And then, of course, when she couldn't pay, they arrested her. But then we see other stories like Felicity Hoffman with the the college admission scandal. We see other folks that have had had their, their issues and their retorts. It's yes. just so interesting to me. It's it's it, this 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 disregard for black people at the systemic level. Wow. <laughs> wow. So <laughs> talking about the systemic level, we have systemic racism and people will fight me on that and mm-hmm. say that it's not true. And I know even with um the prisons, the background of that, they have to have so many people locked up Mm -hmm. and we are the ones the black people a lot of times and Mm -hmm. i don't know my figures i'm sure you do have to suffer that right Mm -hmm. yeah and let's i'm throwing this at you let's talk about so let's unpack that one so that's what we call lockup quotas lockup quotas so let me let me first back up so there is a federal prison and then there's also the, the, let, me, let me say this again. There are a, a state-run or federally-run prisons, and then there are also a lot of independently-run prisons that we call private prisons, or what we call the prison industrial complex. So here's what I find to be very interesting, is the fact that you and I, if we want to, we can go actually buy stock in the prison company. Let's just let that sit in for a moment. You and I have the capacity to go and buy stock in the prison companies. They are publicly traded companies. You know, Corrections Institute of America, what is it, CCA, right? The Corrections Institute of America, that's one, for example. So the majority of these prison companies then develop contracts with the states that they want to, to hold their prisoners for because many states don't have the capacity to hold their own prisoners. So they then contract the same way that companies contract for a janitorial service, things like right. instead of hiring their own janitors or their own uh, sanitation workers, they'll contract. Like in Kansas City, the city has their own company, but they also privatize with Duff and by right? Contracts. Yeah. So what the states do then is they have these contracts with these prison companies and these companies have in their clauses what they call lockup quotas. Over 70% of the prisons, that means if you count seven out of 10, they have a lockup quota. That lockup quota means in many of them, when you look at the numbers, approximately the majority of them have a lockup quota that says we must have a prison field at at least 90%. That means nine out of 10 beds, 90 out of 100 beds, 900 out of 1,000 beds must be filled. And if they're not, if they are not, you still must pay us according to this 90% quota. So if you ask me, that takes away the room for restorative justice. Because if you actually do that, look at all the hands that are in the pot of people being criminalized. Let's, let's, let's unpack that for a moment. Okay. Okay. I, I really do believe that's one of the reasons why we don't really see the reform that we're talking about is because people make money off someone being in prison. And it goes back into after, after slavery. When slavery was abolished in 1865, they could no longer actually enslave people. So what they did was they would jail them for things like loitering, not having a job. Mind you, they prevented black people from getting the job because of the institutional racism. And then they would charge you 
and commit and, and, and sentence you for then not having a job. That way they could put you back in jail. And then you could, of course, become enslaved yet again because of what we call the 13th Amendment. So it's so much to unpack there where the prison industrial complex has always, if you ask me, been against poor people and against people of color, particularly black people. And so some could argue, well, but if black folks don't commit the crimes, they wouldn't be in jail. If they only comply, they wouldn't be in jail. Well, two things. One, we see from the research, there are individuals, i.e. black individuals, who their communities tend to be over-policed, than white communities, over-policed. Yep. They tend to have overzealous prosecutors that give them higher sentences than white folks for the same crimes. Not to mention there are a number of black bodies that have come forward after DNA evidence and other evidence that have been exonerated. Exonerated being, yeah. means that they were proven to be uh, not guilty after they've been spending so much of their life in jail. That's what's yeah. interesting to me. Not to yeah. mention the last thing I'll say, then I'll let you ask another question because I can go on for days. But yeah. the last thing I'll say is even when we look at the sentence disparities between, between crack cocaine. So you have crack yeah. cocaine and then you have powder cocaine. So crack cocaine, not to mention, let's first ask the question, where do these drugs even come from to begin right. with? So we right. had that. I mean, we had to have these drugs that actually had to be poisoned and put into the communities. People didn't just create these drugs. Right. These were drugs that were housed in and put into the communities, right? There's actually yeah. a quote by J. Edgar Hoover where he was in his memoir talking about it. He was one who, if you don't know about J. Edgar Hoover, he was the FBI director during Martin Luther King's time. And he actually put Martin Luther King on the FBI's most wanted list for those who 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 are so quick to love Martin Luther King, just know that in 1965, folks didn't love him. So let me just say yeah. that. <laughs> but he actually talked about the fact that when they said, how did you deal with people like the Black Panthers and the Black folks? He said, essentially, we just gave the, the Negroes, the niggas, I'll, I'll just be explicit yeah. to say that. And if it makes you uncomfortable, if you can't say amen, then you better say ouch. But he said, <laughs> we gave the niggas uh, guns and drugs and we let them shoot themselves. Wow. And that's a powerful, powerful wow. paradigm piece coming from the FBI director. So not only do we let drugs raid the community, we then have a sentencing disparity. When you look at the chemical compound for each drug, crack and powder cocaine, they're chemically made the same. You can cook them a little differently. You can ingest them a little differently. You can kind of have your way. But the, the, the crack cocaine was more for the poorer folks. The powder yeah. cocaine was more for the upper echelon, if you will. The crack cocaine had a higher mandatory minimum. The powder yeah. cocaine for the upper echelon had a slap on the wrist if yeah. you even had to go to jail for the same drug. Dang drug. This is a part of the history that people don't want to deal with. So then let's go deeper. Let's look at the fact of marijuana, weed. Right now, people yeah. are still incarcerated. Some are in jail for life sentences, not for selling, not for using, but for the intent, Latrice, to sell weed. The what? intent. One individual's in jail for like $10 worth. And now wow. you have Colorado, you have D.C., you have yeah. California, you have a multitude, a plethora, an abundance of states that have now legalized the weed. And the majority of people who are benefiting off of marijuana are white individuals. So where is the restorative justice for all those who we, who we, have, we have criminalized? Yeah. 
And yeah. not only that, if you release them, if they can't get a job, then how the heck are they are, are, are going to have quality work so that they don't, they don't go back to jail to begin with? Right. I just It's so much to unpack here. But think about that restorative justice piece that's missing. Anyway, I don't want to take over your show, so you got to ask me questions. No, I, no, that's good because we need to know this. This is things that we don't talk about enough. Right. You know, people don't know this and they don't understand. And again, in order to heal, you have to have a clear understanding. Yes. That person is going through. Because how do you heal when you don't know what the work, when you don't know what the wound looks like? You can, I cannot heal a wound if I haven't first assessed the wound. I cannot heal a wound if I haven't first looked at the wound to see what is actually wounded. Then that's not called healing. That's called fictitious work. Right. Lose your license if you're a doctor doing that kind of healing. Right. And and that and that's exactly what we've been able to do for so long mm-hmm. in America. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Fictitious work. Right. Fictitious work. And, yes. And, you know, just pat on the back or the mm-hmm. head and say, OK, right. we, we've moved a little bit. OK, be quiet. Mm-hmm. No, we need to really right. get into the grind of things. And yeah. so for those that are watching and listening, please. Um, like, cause y'all know this is good. I, I should see a whole bunch of hearts just going and popping, right? We need, I mean, popping, popping, popping. And if you have a question for Michael, if you're brave enough, go ahead and ask the question. Trust me. Um, but let's get back into it. Um, and I know you can't cover everything, mm-hmm. but you're giving us so much to think about, chew on, and then we have to do the work yeah. as well. Yeah. You know, and that's what's yeah. important. Um, because so, a lot of this work, well, go ahead, let me- let me. No, go ahead. ahead. No, no, let's well, do it. Let's I was gonna say, it. a lot of this work, I think people are so used to having an engineering mindset where if you ever connect with an engineer, they tend to have the modality or the mentality of, let's find Y equals MX plus B. That's a mathematical equation for a slope, if, if any mathematicians are out there. Or, you know, Y2 over Y1 over X2 over X1. So they tend to have this, this type of, this, type of uh, this logical mentality that if I do X plus 2 plus X plus 3, I'll get X plus whatever. And that's just not how this works. This is not something where we can talk about one time, one yeah. season, one conversation and be done. When things are so embedded, when it's when when, when this has been happening for centuries, for decades, yeah. for centuries, really since the foundation of this country, you, yeah. you you there's no way you can you can talk about it in a one-hour documentary or a one-hour session or even right. one book. Even because what's deeper is how all of these messages have impregnated our brains. They actually impregnated our brains to believe certain things. And that's where that concept of bias comes into play. See, here's the reality. Black folks can't be racist. Um, Latino folks can't be racist. Racism is power plus privilege. That's the definition that I subscribe to. That's the theory that I believe in. So power, meaning you have the ability to create. Black folks, we're we're 13.8% of the population. We don't have enough power to be racist. We just don't. We can be biased. We can be prejudiced, but you can't be racist. We don't have the privilege to create systems. We just don't have that type of capital because we are. Look at the capital of black families and white families, the the actual financial capital. 
Yes. There's a huge disparity. Look at the wage gap for the same types of degrees and same types of education. There is a wage gap. I'll give you an example when we talk about institutional racism. There is some yes. research out there. When you look at the fact that states have it for people who go, I don't believe in institutional racism. It's a myth. Well, then tell me, why is it the states have had to produce what they call in New York and in California and in other states, the Crown Act, meaning you cannot be discriminated against because of your hair? It wasn't because you had long, nice blonde hair. Right. It wasn't because your hair was very straight and, 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 and brown. It was because part particularly, actually, the U.S. Appeals Court said that it was okay. See, the thing about the court system is that they can only talk about the laws. They don't create laws. They can only right. say if, if what you're doing is constitutional. And because there was no law against it, the appeals court said it was okay for you to fire and or withhold employment based on someone having their hair in locks. And we know that locks only impact 99.9% of the time people with curly or kinky textured hair, i.e. people of color, black folks, people with a certain type of, of, of hair texture, right? So people were actually able to be fired. I actually know two individuals personally who were told, yeah, I want to hire you, but I can't do that until you change your hair. So that is a concept. So because there, there was no law on the books, the, the court said that it was constitutional for the appeals court said that it was the federal appeals court said that it was constitutional for these states or for these, these these companies to withhold employment based on hair texture. So states have then had to go out and say you cannot ban people from employment, withhold fire, whatever, based on them having locks in their hair. Another case that was done out of the University of Michigan, also out of Harvard and another study out of another university that was showing how. Black folks with ethnic sounding names were, who had a college degree, who had no criminal record, who had done everything correct. They yeah. were less likely, Latrice, to get a call back for a set for the job than a white person who had a criminal record, yeah. who didn't have a college degree, but who had yeah. a traditionally white sounding name. Yes. See, that is the power of white supremacy. We've yes. been bamboozled to believe that white supremacy means that it's about those folks with the, the, the white, the, the white yes. hair, right? Or the, the mask yes. and the attire. Yeah, that may yes. be a, a, a conduit of it. But real white supremacy is systems that favor and pontificate that whiteness is right and blackness is bad. That's the concept of white supremacy. So the fact that they say things like it's not professional to wear your hair that way. Yeah. It's not professional to have a name that has an ethnic meaning or ethnic or, yeah. a, or a tribal background. It's not yeah. professional. Right. So you were right. disqualified from jobs because of your name. Other research has come out to show that those who, who apply for, for loans, car loans specifically, that white folks and black folks who are, have been applying for car loans with the same credit portfolio, i.e. the same credit score, white folks were getting lower interest rates than black folks for the same, for the same credit score, same credit portfolio. That is the concept of institutional racism. It's systemic, actually, that's more so systemic racism. It's systems in place, but that's systemic and institutional. But that shows you it's there. 
The data doesn't lie. I'll give you a, a final example that we look at the fact that black women are about four times more likely to die, to die giving childbirth than white women. And people can say, well, maybe it's because they're poor. Let me give you an example of what I mean. That that's not always the case. It's not Well, we can look at, of course, how poverty plays a role in that. Yeah. But here's an example of a case. There was a case who's actually it's currently being litigated, I believe. But I don't know if you know Judge Glenda Hatchett, the, yeah. the TV judge. Yeah. Just yeah. Google Judge Hatchett's son, yeah. son's uh, wife who I, died during yeah. delivery. And one of the things that I thought was so interesting in that case was the fact that she was at Mount Sinai, a very profitable and prominent hospital in Los Angeles, California, where you had to have a little coin of a money yeah. to be given you to be delivering your baby there, right? So right. she was crying habitually, saying, Hey, I'm in pain. Hey, this is a problem. Hey, I feel like I'm bleeding. Something is wrong. They didn't even believe her. They didn't listen to her. Her husband was pleading and begging hour one, pleading and begging hour two, pleading and begging hour three, pleading and begging, begging hour four. Nobody came to help her. They said, we'll get to her when we can. Why? Because we essentially don't see her as valuable. The yeah. doctors dismissed it. The nurses dismissed it. When they finally said, we see blood, because blood was actually coming in her catheter, I believe. When they finally said, we see that there's a problem, they then had to rush her to the ER. When they rushed her and cut open her abdomen, it was in a pool of blood. They couldn't do anything. She immediately had, went into cardiac arrest, had a heart attack, and she died on the table. That could have been prevented by a small nick to the artery, which is what caused that internal bleeding, yeah. could have been prevented had they saw and monitored her and believed her cries. Serena Williams, another example, had a baby. They didn't believe she was in pain. She almost died from blood clots. Yeah. She did what she was supposed to do. She yeah. got the money, as, as quote unquote folks say she was yeah. supposed to do. Got the money, got the prestige, still almost died. And she's at the one of the, the, the world famous Serena Williams tennis player. Yes. So, again, <laughs> racism doesn't exist. Mm. So now, this is the other part. This is the last thing I'll say. Okay, you got to let me see what time we got. Because this is the part that's interesting. This is when you talk about a pathway to healing. I can't even begin to get to healing when we first don't focus on racial justice. And you, yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I no longer say racial reconciliation because there's nothing to reconcile. People came to this country. First, this country was stolen, right? So yeah. there, there's really nothing to reconcile. It, it, it can only be racial justice. But before we can even get to the concept of healing, let me break something down for individuals compassionately and gracefully. This is one of the reasons why I see the most conflict in, in, in the therapy sessions that I conduct when I'm working with couples and with families. Often, the main reason why there is so much combat, not conflict, but combat where we're fighting at each other, is because the minute someone shares with you their experience, because it hasn't been my experience, people are then quick to dismiss to devalue and to debunk. Okay, that's a good yeah. word for you, Latrice. Debunk. Debunk yeah. means to dispel, to disprove, yeah. to, to knock down, to say why it's inaccurate. Oftentimes, whether it's familial or relational or racial, when people come to us with experiences that contradict our experiences, instead of learning how to listen and show empathy, we have been so trained to debunk. 
And debunk means we quickly write out and argue why they're wrong instead of saying, I wonder if it's a yes and. Yes, my perspective is true for me, but yes, their perspective can also be true for them. That's what empathy is. Empathy is perspective taking. It's learning how to associate and say, I wonder how this can be true for someone even when it's not true for me. I wonder how a woman can have ovarian cancer even when as a man, I can't have ovarian cancer. That's the equivalent of me telling you, girl, you can't get ovarian cancer because I can't get ovarian cancer and I'm human. Yes. It's not logical. It's not. And it's not compassionate. It's not. But we do that. But we do it. We often do it. It's done. Let's just say that. Yes. So I want to, and I know we haven't even got to the healing, but I do want to touch on two, maybe three more things. And then we'll kind of, generalize the healing process, right? I want to talk about white privilege and I want to talk about what people now say are Karens Mm. or falsely accused, (laughs) right? Because of their privilege. Mm -hmm. I'm throwing it at you. Okay, so let's unpack white privilege for a little bit. This is the thing about white privilege. And let me first say, I am on, on the record to say, I don't know why folks are so, I, this is the question that I often ask people is when they hear the term white pr- privilege and they get uncomfortable, I often say as a therapist, as a counselor, as a person, I go, and this is what I would even say in my sessions, I wonder, tell me why that, well, first of all, what is that bringing up for you? And let's unpack why that's causing such discomfort. Why is it so uncomfortable to acknowledge this institution, this system of the United States has adopted me as the majority. Therefore, when you are in any majority, you have privilege. If the majority of people are men making decisions, then men have privilege. And people are are okay to say male privilege. That's so easy for women to say. People are able to say male privilege. But when we break up the concept of white privilege, people often hear, even though it's not what's being said, people often hear Well, I've worked hard for what I've gotten. Nothing was handed down to me. I grew up poor. I grew up in a, you know, on a, on a, a, um, on a, what do you call those places? A a trailer park. I grew up Uh there. No Uh one is saying you didn't work. No one is saying you didn't earn what you didn't earn. The the way that I like to analyze analyze it is how it was also broken down to me at one point that I thought was very thought provoking was how it's like two people are swimming in a stream. If you've ever ever gone kayaking or canoeing or even swimming for white folks who are in the majority, who the system was created by. Right. If, If they're in the majority, they're swimming, although they're working hard and they're using the same type of energy, they're flowing with the current. They're flowing with the current. But for people of color who are not in the majority, they're flowing against the current. Hmm. Let me give you an example of what I mean by that. When I'm on a flight from Washington, D.C. to one of my favorite places in Southern California, going to L.A. or going to Southern California, it's about a five and a half hour flight close to six hours of a flight. And the reason why it's close to six hours is because we are going against the wind. So because we're going against the wind, we now have to play. Uh, we have to, I have to be on that plane, cramped in that seat for about six hours. But when I am returning from Southern California, yeah. from the West Coast, back to D.C. to the East Coast, it's about a four-hour flight. Mm. How can that be, Michael? Right. 
I'm glad you asked. Let's ask astronomers how that can be. It's because you are flowing with the wind current. Because you are flowing with the wind current, you have a smooth sail. It's less turbulent. It's less rocky. You are going against less resistance. It doesn't mean you're not going to have some rockiness. It doesn't mean yeah. it won't be turbulent on some days, on some times, in some yeah. ways. But generally speaking, yeah. you are flowing with the wind, with the current. That's another example of what I mean when I say white privilege. And so when we unpack some of the things that we see systemically, redlining was a, is a thing, yeah. was a thing. And there yeah. was a place, a particular place. And let me, let me first unpack what redlining is for those who may not know. Redlining is essentially where, 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 where these developers, these people, they actually had an, a physical map and they would map out, they would put a, get a red marker and map out the areas that were red, the areas that were green. The areas that were red, they they deemed them to be areas that were not safe for investment, i.e. black folks live there. Right. So they would not give people home loans in those areas. Areas that were green, they, they deemed them to be safe for investment, will give them good loans. They then, in order to get what we call that quote unquote term of white flight, where white folks moved to the suburbs, right. the suburbs were only created because white folks wanted to be separate from black people. So yep. what they did was they actually bulldozed a lot of cities, bulldozed where jobs were for black folks and created these highways. These highways were not there years ago. They created these freeways, these interstates to get people from the city into the burbs. And they knew that black folks couldn't go there if they didn't have transportation. Because right. there wasn't no public transportation getting you from the city to the suburbs, right? Yeah. So you yeah. could live in the burbs, drive and work in the city and work downtown. Yeah. And so they even made it a part of their deeds. There are even some places now where it's still in the deed, although you can't legally enforce it. But in the deed, it would make statements and claims such as you cannot sell rent to a Negro. That's the, the, that was the epitome of redlining. And so if you do not, let's break this down, what this means. If you do not allow folks to actually get home loans, we know that the majority of ways people acquire wealth is through home equity because the economy tends to do well for the most part. We had the crash in 08, 09. That's yeah. one example. But for the most part, the homes tend to produce equity every year, especially in the D.C. area. It's just astronomically ridiculous. And so these individuals, they'll say, if, you, if you, we, we don't give you money for a home loan, we don't give you money for a business loan, we make it very challenging for you to actually acquire wealth, right? We make yeah. it difficult. So then, not only do we make it difficult, we then box you and we create these ghettos. And for those who don't know what ghetto is, ghetto is simply an area of a, a highly populated area that's also highly concentrated with poor people. It started with the term the Jewish ghettos. So ghettos, I often correct people when they say, oh, he or she's being ghetto. No, you can't be ghetto. Ghetto is a place. It, it's a noun, sure, but it's not a person. It is a place, right? And yeah. so it's an area of high poverty. It's a high concentration of a lot of folks packed up in an area that's highly impoverished. So they created these ghettos, right? They then yeah. created schools that were poorly funded because schools are paid based on property taxes. So if in fact the homes in the black communities were undervalued and were not poorly, not poorly monetized, the schools don't get the same funding as the homes in the white communities where schools are funded based on the property value. So if in, the, if in the inner city area, the home value was $30,000, you're going to pay less taxes than in the right. home, if the home values were $300,000, right? Right. So you, you 
poorly educate people. You, you prevent them from being able to acquire wealth. You poorly educate them. You then get pissed off when they desire and they need government's assistance. Then a concept of the power of, of, of this, this, this privilege is that the fact that in these communities, black communities, in order for people to qualify for government's assistance, they couldn't even even have a father in the household. It was the, the no man in the home rule. And the, the, the modality was if you have a father in the household, you shouldn't need government's assistance without realizing all the systems in place. So let me right. ask you this question. If you have not, if your community has not been been attacked in such a way where you have the, where the government has physically had to say you cannot have a father in the household in order to to get government's assistance. So not only do you keep us from being able to acquire wealth, you then put us in schools where they're poorly funded, people are poorly educated. You then, when people apply for government's assistance, you then kick the father out. I know there are stories of folks who said that they would, that they would re recall stories of their father hiding in the closet, Latrice. Wow. Hiding in wow. the closet when the welfare workers came by to do inspections. And more often than not, you couldn't have a TV in the household because the claim was, if you had a TV, you had enough to make money. So you had all these systems in place. It's very interesting when you break the welfare concept down, but I don't want to spend too much But anyway, in terms of wrapping up the concept of privilege, so that's really where, where, where that privilege starts. So if you have a home, if, if you have been able to have in the suburbs, and originally it was worth $100,000, and it consistently goes up and up and up and up and up, those individuals have been able to have that excess, that, 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 uh, that quality line of credit to send their kids off to college, do all types of things. That's the power of the privilege. But even beyond, at the bare basic level, if yeah. you are in the majority of a population, you have privilege. There is Christian privilege. The fact yeah. that that your religion is 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 quoted in churches your religion is quoted in government sanctions your religion is quoted in courthouses your religion yeah. when, when when you hear someone say a good christian man when your religion is associated with good whereas those who are muslim are often associated with terrorists and bad that wow. is a layer of privilege we don't wow. often say oh that's a good muslim man no it's more more often than not be people who are being Muslim, when in, when, retro, when in reality, the majority of those who committed terrorist acts were Christian men who were also white in this country, not Muslims. If you want to look at the FBI data. So the church, if I can speak on this, especially the evangelicals, the white church has got to speak up and begin to say, this is not acceptable. This is a problem. This is a problem. The yeah. majority of people who've committed the crimes, look at Dylan Roof, went to worship with yeah. black people and then slaughtered them. The majority yeah. of those who committed atrocities in our country have been white individuals in the name of their version of Christianity. And that is another truth that if you want to heal, we got to deal with. We drop the mic, please. And thank you. Um, we got some people saying good information. We have preach. We need public <laughs> school funding reform badly. I got someone saying big facts. <laughs> so I, I got someone saying, say that. <laughs> so it, and then um, can't do the healing until you've done the dealing. So, you yes. know, that's going to go down because that yes. was one of the first statements that you made. Yeah. Um, Did I answer I, your question though about the white privilege and just again, 
Being yeah. in the majority, if you are a male and the majority of decision makers are men, you have privilege. Let's also talk about the colorism privilege, being a light-skinned yeah. person. I yeah. have to adapt and understand greater the power of light-skinned privilege. It doesn't mean yeah. I'm not going to struggle, but I know that when I'm giving talks, and I really wonder, Latrice, when I'm giving talks and folks are paying me to come and talk to all white teachers or all white groups, or yeah. I'm, I gave a talk to... Uh, to, to CBS once and to to Haynes Brands, the, the, the corporate Haynes Brands, the Haynes Underwear Company, and to, to a, uh, an HBO, I think, no, Showtime, HBO. And I just wonder, and even when I'm giving talks to predominantly white school districts, the layer of privilege that I think about, I wonder, when I'm giving these talks on education, on equity, on understanding trauma, whatever I'm talking yeah. about, I just wonder if my name were Daquan, and I was six foot three with locks in my hair and dark complexion. I just wonder, I don't know for certain, but I wonder if I would be hired and taken as credible and as seriously. But the fact that I am 5'8", the fact that I am a light-skinned male who, who speaks of a certain vernacular, the fact that I, I, I dress of a particular way, and not to mention my name is as racially ambiguous as it comes, Michael. <laughs> My name is Michael. The fact that my name is Michael. I yeah. wonder yeah. That, that layer of privilege. I, I just wonder, would things be different if I were dark complected, taller, like you have they kind of see black men as threats? Yeah. And as folks had to remind me, you are less of a threat. That is a layer of privilege. And the question is, will you be defensive about your privilege or will you use your privilege in such a way that interrupts and disrupts? You can spend all your energy defuting white privilege or light skin privilege or whatever kind of male privilege or Christendom privilege or whatever privilege you want to, because we all have it in some capacity yeah. more often than not. You can spend all your energy rebuking the privilege or you can say, let me understand how yeah. I can be a conduit of equity and empathy and real racial justice. White privilege is a thing. It's just there. You didn't ask for it. You didn't get it. But let me tell you, give me privilege. Yeah. You think the I don't have privilege. Give me privilege. Will you yeah. use your privilege in such a way that levels the playing field and that yeah. promotes equity and justice and liberty for all? That is the question before you rebuke it. Why don't you figure out how do I use it? Why is it so uncomfortable instead of just dealing with it to use the privilege? Absolutely. And with that, with the privilege, sometimes, I mean, we're seeing a lot of abuse with the privilege. Absolutely. You know, falsely calling 911 saying, mm -hmm. you know, this individual did this or is doing this. Yeah. And again, whether you want to admit it or not, you have, you know, you have that privilege. Right. You're bold enough to call 911 and mm -hmm. say, hey, I'm, you know, I'm, telling this lie, but I know I'm protected. Right, right. Dangerous. It's very dangerous. And it's what people have done. And this is where I implore white folks to call on their Karens and their their their, their Rebecca's and who what other names we have. Um, you know, but yes. I implore them to deal with this. As Toni Morrison said that I thought was interesting years ago, she said, there are white folks who have a problem and white people need to deal with the problem. Leave me out of it. And I thought that was so funny how she said yeah. that, but I, as much as I, and I don't necessarily say leave me out of it, but I will say that white folks have got to stand up and call out these Karens. And we're seeing that now. I'm, 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 I will acknowledge, we are seeing a lot of white folks who are saying, not on my watch. I, I'm seeing some type of a rumbling and an awakening yeah. at the very fabric of this country that I've never seen before. 
where I'm seeing white folks literally say, I've been complicit. You know, I do a lot of these, 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 these posts of commentary on my page. And I had a few white folks, one, in fact, that I can recall who said, I, I just I've been evaluating what have I been doing all these years? Why mm-hmm. is it that I've been so silent? What have I been doing in my work and in my life and in my parenting? And she said, all the answers that I come up with are just not good enough. What have I been doing? And so you see these people, you particularly you see white folks who are waking up out of their stupor and saying, what is going on? And so but but speaking of the Karens, though, these are individuals who are weaponizing their whiteness because they understand the power of the white woman's tears. They understand the power of the white woman's cries the same way in the hospital when the white woman cries she's more likely to get that care than that black woman who died in labor and delivery they understand that if i can say i'm being threatened and attacked by an african-american male like what happened in the central park five like what happened with emmett till all the like what happened with amy cooper all of those stories, they understand that we have been conditioned. Let me, uh, let, let's unpack the power of conditioning. Let me give you some biological and neurological research. There are different layers of our brain, right? That we have the frontal lobe of the brain that's all about logic and decision making. We have then have our, our limbic system that's all about the emotional part of our brain. Then we have our brain stem or our animal brain. That animal brain, and the reason why we call it the animal brain is because it can be very animalistic in its behavior. Animalistic meaning it's all about fight, flight, freeze. It's all about the things we do unconsciously, our brain stem. So if your brain stem is damaged, you really have a problem. It controls your breathing. It controls when you, parts of your brain stem control when you are in danger to know you need to run, you need to freeze. It's all about safety and survival. Well, next to the limbic system and that that, that um, animal brain is a little bitty thing like a little peanut. I don't know if you can see my eyeball, but it's a peanut, the size of a peanut, actually smaller than that. And it's called the amygdala, A-M-Y, the amygdala. And the amygdala's job is ultimately really to keep us safe. So what the amygdala does is the amygdala is like a transcriber. It writes and records everything that you say. So when you say certain things, the amygdala says, hmm, you see the amygdala, see how I have this chart here? This is actually some statistics that I've been writing up from some work that I'm doing. But the amygdala literally is just, it's a a chart and it just writes all these statistics and codes and everything else that it sees out of, and it's designed is to keep you safe. So what does it do? It writes and it records, it writes and it records, it writes and it records with the auspices to keep you safe. That's what it believes anyway. The issue here is the amygdala can be hijacked. In fact, we actually can be hijacked from our amygdala. So although the amygdala's job is to keep us safe, it transcribes experiences that we see in media, it transcribes experiences that we see in movies and stereotypes and, and news segments, like I said before, let's go all the way back to the very beginning of the topic that we talked about, where the news media, the, the majority of us watch news, and we see if the news over-reports black crime, under-reports white crime, the amygdala is then charting that black folks are more dangerous and that white folks are 
less dangerous. Yeah. Why? Because it's only recording what it sees. It only records what it sees. It only records what it sees. What it, sees. it only records what it sees. And so for many of us, because we are not conscious of what's being processed in the amygdala, yeah. we then will pontificate and promote the stereotypes and all those types of things that are happening. And so when we talk about the lady using her whiteness and weaponizing it, the same thing is true. I've even had to be aware of it. As a black man, yeah. me knowing what I know, when I'm in the street and I one day saw a black man walking and I looked twice like, oh, what's he doing? Well, wait a minute. The ones who have committed more of the crime in this area have been white folks. But my amygdala yeah. doesn't see that. My amygdala sees all the stories on the 10 o'clock news that said that the, the person, the perpetrator was a black man with, with this, a black man with that, a black man with this. So we have we have been fed to believe it. So that's why even with the Central Park Five, if you I don't know if you've seen that story when they yeah. see us on Netflix. Yeah. But even though there was no evidence linking them to the crime, even black folks thought they were guilty. Yeah. Yeah. That's the power of white supremacy. It has us even believing we're guilty. Right. That's and we the power. That earlier, you know, even just me having to retrain myself yes. on some things yes. just because yes. we get, you know, I remember even thinking at one point when you do watch the news, when it's a crime committed by a black person, they say black man, black woman. But when it's a white person, they, they don't often omit the race. They, mm -hmm. they omit it. And so yes. even those things mm -hmm. have a, a place in how we think and how we view and why we have some biases Absolutely. even in our own race. Right, right. So, even years ago, decades ago, they would often show black men as criminals and thugs and yeah. calling them, you know, even from whether it was on the left or the right, Democrat, Republican, calling them yeah. super predators and things like that. Well, the super yeah. predators, really? What about the yeah. child molesters and the rapists? And what about, the, what about those who commit heinous crimes, who shoot up theaters, who more often than not tend to be white? And I'm not saying this to say white folks are worse than black, black folks no. are better than white. I'm saying evaluate it for its merits. We yeah. have been conditioned to believe globally. This yeah. ain't just with the U.S. Globally. globally. We've been conditioned to believe that the black folks are lower than. Yeah. That's the yeah. power of white supremacy and colonization. Yeah. Oh, and I, and of course I told you this was going to go fast. We haven't right. touched it. So what I'm going to do typically I do an insight and I'm still going to do it, but we're going to, I'm going to have you do the insight somehow. I don't know how you're going to do this. Touch on something about where do we go from here? Yeah. Um, I see there's something that says there is so much to unpack. So where do we go from here? What at the, what at the steps and what order we take towards a society that it's anti-racist. Mm. So that kind of goes into our topic, our title, which mm -hmm. is healing. Yes. So the insight, I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to yeah. give it to you and I'm going to throw this last ball to you and you tell us as much as you can. I know you can't get it all in. Yeah. But what are some things? Centuries in the making. But I yeah. love the, 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 the question highlighted the concept of anti-racism. And so there's a, a quote out there by, and I don't want to butcher his name. Oh, because it's so late. He actually, he's in D.C. He's a professor at American. He has the book called How to Be an Anti-Racist. Uh, is it Ibrahim uh, Candy? It's his last name. 
Okay. Um, but I, forgive me if I'm butchering it because I believe in paying people homage for their name. And so I don't even want to say the name if I can't announce it, pronounce it correctly. If we can say Bach and, Be- and Basquiat and Beethoven, then I can learn to say your name too. And so yes. I, I pay homage to folks' names um, yes. because I get the most privilege of the name Michael or the most amb- racially ambiguous name. But, but when we look at the concept of anti-racism, anti yes. means we are adequately and intentionally doing the work. It's not enough just to say, you know, one woman wrote on my post the other day. She said, I haven't thought about racism since the 1960s and I won't start now. And so she essentially said, if you want to come over here, then you need to assimilate. And I thought, assimilate? This land was stolen from the indigenous people. If anything, we should have been assimilating. Oh, don't get me started on that. But the concepts of being anti-racist, number one, check your privilege. But every single day, you've got to do your own work of unpacking how you benefit from racism, whether that's through therapy or through introspective work or through these types of conversations or through consistently reading, do your work. That is the the, the first step. It's, It's a tiered approach. The first step is having your own consistent awakening. The second step, let me let me go back to the first step, having your own layered awakening, do your own work, become conscious of the ways you've benefited from white supremacy. Ask yourself, how has your whiteness, how has it shown up and how have you benefited? And then also ask yourself, in what ways have I, and then become aware, have I promoted anti-blackness? In what ways have I said that black is wrong? That is a real piece of work you've got to learn how to do. So read books, watch docu-series, understand things that you've never even heard of or thought of. And that's the power of white privilege is the fact that your history is regularly taught in school and it's taught in a whitewashed way. You're not mm. taught about more, more often than not. You ain't really taught in the history books about redlining. You're taught about how your ancestors came in and discovered America. You're not yeah. taught how they stole America. The yeah. power of white privilege. That's yeah. it right there. Your history is taught in a way that makes your ancestors look good. But all you learn about us is that we were slaved. Not yeah. that we were enslaved, but that we were slaves. Woo! There is a difference. Enslaved says that I was brought here in captive. Slave says I was born this way. No, when you say enslaved, you put it back on the, you put the responsibility back on the captive, the oppressor. Black folks were not slaves. They were enslaved by the oppressor. But when your story, when your history teaches you that your founding fathers were were good and great and they're the reason why this country is the way it is, that's the power of white privilege, baby. Do your work to unpack how you benefit from the system. And then from there, the second tier is being able to disrupt and interrupt in conversations that you have with your immediate circle, in your in your with your family, at the dinner table, when you hear your uncle or your aunt or your mother or your father challenge them. And it's what's sad to say is there are a number of white folks who are losing friends and family yes. because they're trying to be anti-racist. Yes. Let that sink in. They yes. are losing friends and family for yes. working to be anti-racist. How laughable is that? And so once you do the work to interrupt that stuff, then the third tier is how do I then do work to consciously interrupt systems? I know it's just one person. I know it's just me. But when I'm at work 
Am I advocating for appropriate hiring? Do I advocate, if I'm in HR, do I advocate for systems that, that were applications that don't show people's names? Do I make sure that black folks, when, when I look at the data, do I promote and push our leadership or our HR folks to ensure black folks and white folks are paid the same wages when they're doing the same work with similar education, similar experience? How is it that we have very similar commonalities, yet you're paid more than I'm paid? Those are where, where how institutional racism shows up. If you really want to be an anti-racist, it's work. But you owe this work because of what you've benefited from. You owe our society, you owe the world the work to be uncomfortable. That's where your work lies. So you find small ways. You, you contact the people with, with the, 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 the folks with Breonna Taylor's murderers and you push and you promote that they be arrested and charged and prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. Don't just charge them, but prosecute, and they be they, they deal with their sentencing to the fullest extent of the law. If you notice, it's only because we collectively have been speaking out that we're now seeing combustible changes happening. Some of these things, I guarantee you, wouldn't have happened if we didn't speak out because yeah. systems, it was a status quo. The status yeah. quo. Yeah. Yeah. So you find ways to interrupt at your child's school. Do you promote and push that they have a diversified teaching pool? Because let me tell you, having black teachers doesn't just serve black students. The research strongly suggests it serves all students. Yeah. Having diversified teaching staff. And when they say, well, like in Shawnee Mission, well, we just can't find good teachers. Have you gone to recruit them at HBCUs? Have you gone to recruit them in places where black teachers will be? If you go into places like uh, William Jewell, <laughs> well, you're right. They might have two black folks there. So you very well, so are you promoting and pushing things to be changed at the systemic level? If you want to be an anti-racist, do you promote black voices? Because the reality is that what I'm saying, what we've been saying, half of this ain't new. This has been going on for decades. We're just now hearing it. The ears have now been cleaned and clear to listen and to hear. Yeah. That's yeah. A promote black voices, promote black literature, promote black businesses and black banks that give to black communities, create scholarships if you got the money to send black folks to college. Pay, yeah. well, you talk about reparations. We can't win order for real racial justice to happen. And folks don't want to talk about reparations, but the Jews got yeah. reparations. Well, I was going to say. It is necessary. It has to be. When you see the wealth gap, the only way to deal. Now, I will say, I don't believe that we should just give everybody a check for a trillion dollars. No. Because if people have been conditioned to have a poverty mindset, they're going to spend right. that money and put it back in the economy and it won't do anything right. good for them. So I right. do believe that a check should be a part of it. I want my check because we never got out yeah. the acres in a mule. But another area of reparations is education. Looking at how education, what about home loans? Things that yeah. benefit people, black, but we have been yeah. deprived for so many years. There have been people, one, one, one guy is 80 years old, his grandmother who passed away, she was actually, uh, was enslaved. And when, what, what was interesting was when he was sharing the story about his grandmother, when he found out that she had been enslaved, she had walked three, four, five miles to the courthouse to file her paperwork to get her reparations decades ago, and they denied it. So black folks have never gotten reparations. She walked four or five miles to get her check for being enslaved. Never got paid. 
her grandson never got paid, the descendants. So when we look at that, this has impacted people at the cellular level and at the institutional level. So that is my challenge and my clarion call for people is what will you do to be to be to be to better understand, have your own personal awareness. And then and I know it's I know it's overwhelming. It should be. Unpack it piece by piece, day by day. This must be an awakening. And it must be healing. Yeah. And it must be not a moment, but a movement. um, That's exactly what I was about to say, Latrice. In order for it to be a real revolutionary movement, it has to surpass the moment of discomfort that you're in. Do the work. Do the work. (laughs) Troy says, this brother is good. Thank you. I know. (laughs) Bless him. Thank you for being so affirming. Um, Tasha, which is my cousin, says knowledge truly is powerful. And she is a teacher here in Kansas City. And she says, oh, my, I am a teacher and injustice of black teacher is so under the table. It is ridiculous because it's it's not um, talked about. And then Christy says, oh, for sure. There is info data about people with certain names not having their resumes passed along. And Troy said the book is by Ibram X. Kendi. Thank you. And is it how to, because he has a couple of them. He has stamped, but then he has also anti-racist baby. If you want to teach your children. Now I haven't read that yet, so I'm not promoting it, but that's just what's out there. And I I will get a copy of it to see what it's like. Actually, I'm going to be on a call that he's going to be on, but anti-racist baby. But the one I'm talking about with with, uh, Kendi is um, how to be an anti-racist. And I will say to give proper credit Mm. where that was due, that term was coined in the 1970s by the great philosopher Angela Davis, uh, who was a, okay. a current UCLA professor. And she was one who had been on the FBI's most wanted list. And yes. she promoted her and, and, and was her own attorney and came yes. with the numbers and how she about, got herself off. So how about that? <laughs> how about that? That's a whole nother episode. <laughs> a whole nother one. I, I, I can't even. I hope I've covered your vision for today. I don't really know what else what else there's left to say, you know but. Will you the do the work to be an anti-racist? And it starts with checking your privilege. And that's how you start the healing. Yes. Because yes. remember, that. though, let me say this, whether it's and this is what I'm learning in my own healing process from going through childhood wounds. Healing is not linear. It doesn't go up and down, side to side. It goes squiggly line. It, it, it's all yes. over the place. It may be somewhere today, somewhere else tomorrow. Healing is not linear. It takes so many pieces. So you cannot say to people who've been wounded, especially who you've wounded, why are you not over that yet? How dare I tell you, you don't get to harm people or your ancestors don't get to harm people. And then you come tell folks, why aren't you over it yet? And this is especially true when I'm talking to couples and folks in relationships. You don't get to harm someone and then tell them to handle how to handle what you've done to them. That is not your right. Healing isn't linear. And if we we say never forget the Holocaust and never forget 9-11, then we also better say never forget the atrocities that were done to black folks on this sacred land that was stolen from the indigenous people. We've got to tell the truth. to be set free. And if you can't say amen, say ouch. I'm going to say amen and ouch. Because <laughs> I, I, right now, I'm so cool. You have, like, I am going back to listen to this a couple of different times, mm. right? Because I didn't want to be rude and go like this yeah. and be taking notes. So I'm going to do that in my own spare time. But those of you that are with us, please 
like this if you're on Facebook Live. If you're um, listening by podcast, share this because this this information has to get out. It this was truth. This is for people who have the questions because I'm doing this for information to provide for my white sisters and brothers who have asked me privately and publicly and also for my black sisters and brothers, right? Everyone needs this information. Earlier, you were talking about your vision and how everything you do all comes into one. I feel that same way with what I do. I reach, touch, and impact lives, whether I'm on TV, whether I'm counseling someone, whether I'm speaking, whether I'm writing, whatever it is. And so this podcast, this Facebook Live is to reach, touch, and impact. And if I could say, Michael, you did just that. Mm, You did exactly. And so I'm so thankful because the one thing I'm real particular about about is who is on my platform. Absolutely. I pray. I seek the face of God. I seek baby Jesus, which is Olivier. Mm. And also remember, baby Jesus ain't white. That's the power of white supremacy. We've been conditioned to believe that Jesus is white to promote a certain narrative. Maybe you should talk about that on your next show. About you know why what? that's important. But you know what? I, I do want you back. Um, we'll talk because because okay. you got to come back a couple more different times because there's <laughs> some things I want to throw at you okay. um, from the racial side of things, right? Yeah. But also from the trauma side of things. Yeah. Because you can speak on that. But before you go, I would love to um, put your information. You're on all platforms and you're uh, Michael McGill. Junior, mm-hmm. and you're on Facebook, you're on Graham, you're on LinkedIn as Michael M. But don't be messing with her, be messing with them because that's business. So, unless that's so funny, <laughs> it should but, be Michael McGill Jr. everywhere. I have to figure that LinkedIn out. That, okay, know. okay. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the one thing we didn't talk about you're in school, you're at John Hopkins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah let's talk about that for a quick second. Why are you there, sir? Yeah, because I want to gain. Uh, I'm in a fellowship to have a, to, to to expand upon my my interpersonal skills of learning how to be a, a quality therapist. Yes, and so and, and also a researcher, but also learning how to uh, be a therapist and support those who've dealt with trauma and yes. and 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 post traumatic stress, right? But also relationship issues as well. Yes. And so that's the area that I really want to have a more a, a deeper specialization in, and also research understanding. Self-esteem, self-worth. I love the concept of human development. And so yes. that's that's such a passion of mine. And so all and of this ties into human development. Absolutely. And I love nerding out. And if somebody gonna pay me to nerd out, you're gonna pay me. Well, okay. <laughs> Let's do it. I'm ready. Let's yes. go. <laughs> well, again, I thank you, sir. I'm gonna put you on pause for a minute. I want to okay. talk to my people. But thank you. Please, Michael, do not text or email or inbox him. He's busy. You are hilarious. I try to check it a few times a week. Facebook. That is so funny. Virtually, um, you can with a payment. (laughs) With a (laughs) chat. (laughs) Well, tell him to connect with me at mcgillspeaks.com. M-C-G-I-L-L. mcgillspeaks.com. And thanks for having me on your platform and for being able to teach and thanks for the conduit of knowledge you, you are to the, those who've been able to uh, watch this. So thank you so thank much. You. Thank you so much. Hold on for me. Okay. 
I come with it. I come with the best people, right? I come with people who are knowledgeable, um, who are just absolutely fantastic and amazing. And McGill, I mean, Michael, he, I call him McGill. Me and him have, what's so interesting, when we first met, we just would joke with each other. And I didn't know the depths of who this man was. And he, I hope he didn't know who the depths of I, who I am, but he realized, I don't know. But um, but the more I listened to him and the more I got to know him, I, it was just like, wow, he's going to be a voice for years, for years. He is going to change the course of America. Um with his knowledge, with his wisdom, with his voice. And I'm just honored to be just a smidget part of, of him um, in his in his life. Um, but you guys, please share this, this information. I mean, you can't, you can't put a price tag. I mean, this was worth a whole lot of stuff. And share it, like it, um, follow him because let me just help you with it. <laughs> if you follow him, <laughs> you are going to be held accountable for the knowledge that he throws at you. So that means you're going to have to do the work. So if you're ready to do the work, I'm telling you, you need to follow him. He's going to challenge you. He's going to make you th think. He's going to make you understand. He helps you heal, you know, because and he's so transparent. He has ha gone through some things. He's gone through some trauma, family trauma. We all have had it. And he's very honest about it, very true. And um, I've watched him grow um, in the five so years that I've known him. But I am just so full. And hopefully you guys, from the looks of it and from the response, I, I see. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. I'm seeing a lot of thank yous. And, I, you know, I, I can't say enough about um, tonight's episode, but I will say thank you for joining. Um, continue to follow me, if not um, Facebook, but also on Gram, Twitter. Um, download my podcast. I'm not playing with y'all no more. I am on whatever podcast or whatever um, app you like, Spotify, iTunes, all them things. Listen, I got Michael on there and, and so many more. Um, so follow me, tell people about Insights with Latrice. This is real life, real you, real good. And it's where I reach touch and I impact lives. Thank you so much for watching. I'll see you next Sunday at seven. God bless.